because it's it's not easy to do to do all of that at once. And um, I don't think that people in leadership roles have to be perfect, but if they're really trying to fulfill both sides of that equation, I I wind up with so much respect for them. Mm. Me too, because it, it's. It, I think energetically it can feel like a drain, but but you know the other side of that for me personally, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this, is um, when I haven't done it, I felt as if I'm living out of integrity, and actually mm-hmm. for me that is much harder than being able to kind of just be human and and want to know people. Welcome to the With Sayada podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Belonging and Understanding. The podcast that brings to you stories of lived experience that you might not otherwise encounter. This is a podcast that encourages you to cultivate belonging and understand others. I'm your host, author and coach Sayada Zaidi, and every episode I'll be asking a new guest to share their story. Jamie Stowell is an executive leadership coach, group facilitator, and strategic consultant. He has a passion for coaching executives and facilitating intensive group work in leadership development settings and has been doing this for over 20 years, working with the likes of the World Bank, Stanford University, Georgetown University, INSEAD, the Bank of America, and ministries in Qatar and Singapore. Jamie has experience working on five continents across a broad range of industries and cultures. He is also a facilitator on Stanford Graduate Business School's legendary interpersonal dynamics elective, an 80 plus hour deep dive experience, which is a stated reason why many students choose Stanford. So today I'm joined by Jamie Stowell. And when I first met Jamie, the thing that I found most impressive actually was not, you know, which some of the things that unpacked for me later, I then discovered, you know, he's got a variety of leadership roles at Georgetown University and the African Leadership University, INSEAD, and does some really, really incredible work in terms of leadership development. But the thing that that I felt was the kind of connection was just this desire to to do good work, to try and improve the experience of human beings and to try and elevate people so that they can really kind of step into their leadership or their greatness or however you want to describe it. And for me to see people that are saying these things and then walking the walk to demonstrate that is just really, really inspiring. And so that was a, a point of connection. But but as as I we bring Jamie into the conversation, I want to ask you about one thing, because on your site, it says, one thing people don't know about me, I spent my 20s rock climbing in California, Google Lost Arrow Spire Yosemite. That one was a doozy. <laughs> And I'd love you to share the story around that. 
Uh, so, Saida, first, thank you so much for this lovely introduction. Um, it's very kind, and it's an honor to get to speak with you. You know, we've we've had a few conversations, and each of them have just felt so uh, natural. And um, I really um, respect the work that you have done as well. But more than that, just enjoy talking with you. So, this is a nice opportunity to do more of that. Lost Arrow Spire <clears throat> is so in. Yosemite Valley in California, up in the mountains, there's a, there's a deep valley that's kind of cleaved by glaciers and very steep granite faces on both sides. It's, it's a kind of a gathering place for rock climbers from all over the world. And also tourists from all over the world look up at Yosemite Falls, which plunges, uh, you know, a thousand meters or so, nearly maybe 750 meters down a cliff uh, face. And if you look carefully, just to the right of it, off of the rim of the cliff is a little notch that ends in a, in a spire. That's, and the spire is maybe 300 feet tall. Uh, <laughs> so Lost Arrow Spire was with a friend of mine, uh, 1995 or so, I think it was. And we abseiled, we rappelled down off of the edge and then um, came across and then climbed this spire and then we took the rope and we strung it from the from the from the rim to the um, top of the spire. And then you um, use your equipment to go across the rope um, oh, back to the rim of the canyon. And so, what's kind of mind blowing about it is that you're dangling in the air, looking down three thousand feet to the bottom of the valley. And you see the sort of river way down below. And you can barely make out cars down there. And it's just you up there in the air and being supported on a little 11 mil rope. It's really mind blowing. I actually, it, it's one of those times where my mind started playing tricks on me. Uh, it was hard to focus on what I was doing without just getting a little bit kind of out of my head. And I started kind of laughing. Uh, almost uncontrollably about this joke that I made up, which was that maybe this is why people play golf because whatever happens, if you're playing golf, at least you're not doing this. And I thought that was funny. So anyway, it was quite a, quite a funny moment for me. We were, we were right ahead of a team for a Swedish television station, these two adventurers who were diving in shark cages and then had gone to do this thing. Um, so there were a lot of good photographs from, from it because they were photographing us as well. <laughs> so I've been in the Yosemite Valley and I think I know that kind of cliff that you're speaking about. So I've looked up the 3000 feet and it, you know, when you're at the bottom and you look up, it's just pretty impressive. And I think um, I'm always struck by the, the kind of uh, awe of nature and of creation and how these things just kind of like come about and, and the history and the people that have must have been passed through. So Thank you so much for kind of sharing that story. Um, I suppose it kind of leads me to, to an, a, a question that I'd love to ask you because you described that tightrope. And I think sometimes life can be a bit like a tightrope. And then you're just kind of thinking, okay, I've got to hold on. And we tell ourselves stories that enable us to keep continuing and kind of go through some of these challenges, which maybe we've engineered for ourselves. What's your advice for people who are in 
complex situations where they just know they've got to get through it? Oh, well, you know, sort of to carry on that analogy that we were on about that climbing trip, <clears throat> you really touched on something that's fundamental for me, which is a kind of a connection to nature and a recognition of where we are. So environment is part of it. And for me, I have, I think like you just described, awe and wonder for the environment. But none of that is only personal. It's also relational. And I can't do any of this without other people. And in fact, the purpose of climbing, the purpose of everything I do has to do with being in connection with other people and learning and enjoying that experience together. Um, so I could carry on and on about the, the, you know, what that means for rock climbing. People imagine that climbers are adrenaline junkies and whatever. And that, you know, there could be some of that, but for me, it's about being in a crucible of trying something difficult with someone else who I like and care about and then learning in that process and having that as part of our backstory as we go forward. And it doesn't have to be a physical adventure. It can be an intellectual adventure. It can be, uh, you know, I, I think this, you know, fast forwarding to my work in executive education and leadership development, that's what's always driven me, this opportunity to be in a learning journey with people who are experiencing something that they haven't really considered in quite that way. And it contributes to how they see the world and how they see themselves in the world and allows them to get somehow stronger in that relationship with themselves, colleagues they have, how they're operating in the world. You know, as you know well, because I know you're an excellent coach, coaching looks that way too. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I love coaching for, for so many different reasons. And I think one of them is, is this piece about the learning journey that you're describing. And, and actually I'm in the, in the process at the moment of kind of writing some pieces on coaching for my doctorate thesis. And, and one of those, um, uh, kind of expressions is that, you know, when, when one coaches, then the client kind of perceives that it's very much a space for them and 100% it is because when you're in session it's really their time but I always find that the kind of package around that session so my preparation and then my reflexivity after the session is just so enormously useful for my own growth and then it means that one I can serve my clients better but also it means that I hopefully become a better human being because I've kind of learned those lessons and done the unpacking for myself as well. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. And, it, you know, <clears throat> there are other ways to get there for me in the sense that, so I want to stick with coaching, but I also want to bring in travel. I've been lucky, you know, a lot of uh, Americans don't do as much traveling as sort of Brits and others in the world. And I, um, I've been lucky to go to a number of places. And what I love about it is exactly that same um, process of discovery, putting, finding myself in situations where people are really approaching life in ways that are different from me mm -hmm. uh, and recognizing that there are lots of valid ways of living and learning and growing. And so to bring it back to coaching, every coaching client is like, is that sort of a discovery as well? Here's another person who's seeing things differently and, um, what you just described about your preparation process, I really, I relate to that. 
Um, for me, I think at this stage, the challenge I have in coaching is that there's all of this background, all this sort of expertise I kind of have, leadership, my, my mind is full of models, right? Mm -hmm. I have strategy models and strategic human resource models and coaching models and all this stuff. And I have to just kind of like put all that to the background and like get rid of all of my perceived expertise and just show up in advocacy completely for the person I'm with and leave all my good ideas kind of somewhere behind me and just kind of try to be present. <laughs> that's, that's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's really nice how you've described that because, because as you're saying it, there's two things that come to mind. One is Picasso. And in the, I think in the 1960s, he was once asked to, um, to, to draw something um, for somebody who saw him in the restaurant, you know, and he essentially did a sketch on a napkin and when she asked how much it was expecting probably for it to be a couple of hundred dollars or something, he said $10,000 and the person was shocked. And he said, well, you're not just paying me for the five or 10 minutes because it's the, the whole history of all of that learning that has taken me to this point. And then, um, I think Tony Robbins has said as well that before he used to do so much preparation for how he would show up to um, UPW into the various events and things that he does. Whereas he kind of got to the point where he realized actually all you have to do is show up because you've got all the knowledge, you have all of that stuff. And, and my kind of add on to that would be if you, for me anyway, if I start thinking about all of the experience and the qualifications and the blah and all of these other things, actually, I won't go to the session because I then get caught up in either imposter syndrome or ego or lack of kind of ability to be able to remember a particular framework. And it creates a lot of noise, which then affects the session. Yes, yes, yes. Um, a coach that I met uh, 15 years ago or something made a distinction to me that I think draws both sides of this, which was for those of your um, listenership that are familiar with uh, Myers-Briggs types, there's the judging versus perceiving, the J versus the P. And she said something that was so concise and useful to me, which was to prepare like a J and then to coach like a P. So you're, you, you, you're being quite intentional in the preparation process and get locking in as much as you can and making sure all of the backdrop is there. And then you show up um, ready to improvise uh, mm. completely. And I love, I, I love that way. Thank you. Yeah, me too, because I, I am a J in my Myers-Briggs profile and um, I, you know, like with many things in life, I see them both as strengths and also Achilles heels, but your kind of description of the preparation um, prepare as a as a J and then show up as a P. I really love that, and I think that's something that I'm going to take on in how I approach my practice. So, so thank you for that. Yeah, welcome. Okay. Um, I, I'd love to know. You know, you've got such a range of of experience and and of projects that you've been involved in. What makes you feel inspired? Working with young people, it's so easy to answer that question now. <clears throat> because I'm so I'm, I'm 50 years old now and it's a case of not knowing what I don't know. And uh, so there are, I, I get to work with graduate school students at several universities and they communicate differently than I do. And I learn about sort of how 
their modes on WhatsApp or, you know, over text or, you know, when they email at all anymore via email, just, you know, the way that we communicate and the way that we connect is changing. And I don't want to lose track of that. The other thing that's different is, um, you know, I grew up with a system of assumptions about how we operate as people and how we connect to one another and how we show up as, you know, here's my identity, um, trying to put that on display. So we kind of know what we're talking about. And all of those rules are changing too. Mm -hmm. You know, if I show up the way that I maybe did 15 years ago, it, it, it appears performative or outdated or shallow or something. So I, I think I need young people in my life as beyond my own children to just sort of show me the way now um, mm -hmm. and how, you know, kind of how we're going to operate um, as we go forward. Mm -hmm. I really love that because I, th I think um, one of the, the things that I've started to do is, you know, we all have our kind of like circles of where we learn from. And I realized that I'm kind of going to the same places. So I'm looking to expand it. And so I'm now in a couple of groups that are predominantly kind of people in their uh, early 20s and they're aspiring to become entrepreneurs or or to start projects um, that are kind of um, socially related. And it's been really it's actually it's been a huge stretch for me, but it's been really useful for me just to see that different perspective um, because it does bring a level of vitality. You know, and one thinks that, you know, you, I know how uh, a process works or this is the best way. But I have to also remember I was educated in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And what was taught then probably isn't being taught in the same way today. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing what how people can teach themselves on just kind of available materials. We don't need the academy in the way we we used to. Mm. Um I absolutely agree with that. And and I think some, I mean, if I'm sometimes I think the academy is so far detached from the reality of the world, it then also creates tension and challenges. Um, but the other the other thought that came to my mind as well is that um I have a, a really good friend who's an adult and and my son, they kind of approach things, messages that I send to them in exactly the same way, which is I will write out quite detailed messages and kind of say, you know, this is what I'm thinking, et cetera, et cetera. And everything gets ignored because when I when I ask, have you read the message? The response is yes. And I say, well, what did you understand? And there's just a blankness. And I share that because um, it, I had to adjust how I communicate. And so for me, writing those messages feels as if I've sent the message and it will easily be understood. But actually for them, they need to sit in a conversation to hear the message and to kind of discuss it for a few minutes. And that's much more impactful. So I suppose... Um, what I'm sharing here is something about kind of meeting people where they are rather than where one wants them to be. Yes. So, and there's this way of bouncing between, I'm not just going to give you the full picture. I'll say something, you take that in, let me know what you want to know, kind of back and forth. This, this, this dynamic interpersonal exchange 
rather than I'm going to lay it all out for you and I expect you to absorb it and then we'll see where we go from there. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a different process. In fact, uh, there's a one of the grad school courses that I work on is a popular course in business school at Stanford called Interpersonal Dynamics. And it really is about that. It's about how do you, how do you create a deeper relationship by being vulnerable with somebody, making an outreach to them, a bid to them, and then if they pick up that one, then you can try it again, or maybe they do it to you. And you start to build the relationship by being open with another person and the relationship gets deeper. This is great learning for MBA students who may be more focused on instrumental things and you know, the bottom line of a business. But kind of a, an advanced piece of it is not just how you do that, but how you can start to do it in a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth conversation so that you're kind of growing that interaction to, uh, together um, and it doesn't wind up being one-sided. Mm. And I love that because it it's kind of taking me to a place where, you know, I, like uh, having been a director have, and, you know, in, in being in some of the circles that I'm in, I, I think maybe, is it too strong to say that some element of humanity gets lost the further up the food chain you go. And so for, for people to then come along and want to connect at a human level, which is for, for me, that's so much more important than anything else. And when I've set up a couple of teams recently um, and when I've been introducing the people to each other, I've always said primary reason why you're in this team is because I like you and I think you're like everyone else. And I know it sounds really silly, but you know, the thing is, is that I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 50 next year. And I think we, you get to a certain point where you just think, you know, I've done my time of working with people that are just not right for me energetically or don't necessarily have the same values or something like that. And so just being able to express that piece quite transparently and say, yes, you've got the credibility, you've got the skill set, et cetera, et cetera. But also I like you. I think it does so much for the person receiving that. And, and I'm naturally introverted, but I found that just the expression of that and really connecting with people on a human level has, has made them feel as special as I want them to feel. Mm. Wow. That's a wonderful leadership quality. I know you're interviewing me, but I have a qu question for you, which is as you've ascended to kind of higher levels in the organizational structure, how do you maintain that humanity while also holding whatever role requirements are there or institutional requirements are there? How, how do you balance both so well? Yeah, and it's a great question. And I think I am somebody who still likes to get my hands dirty, if that makes sense. And everybody yeah. knows that. You know, so, but of course, people will also know that there's a time where, you know, something is somebody else's job and they need to do that rather than kind of like put the monkey on my back. But at the end of the day, if we're in a team and something needs to get done, then I just think we come together and we do it. And for me, that I, I, I hold on, what am I trying to say? One of the things that I learned really early on when I was at university is that we did a project called a vertical and and usually we would work with our peers on group projects. But this particular project and it was done once a year, you'd work with somebody from all of the different years from like, you know, 
seven all the way down to one. And it taught you how to work in um, in a team where there is a different level of experience and where there is kind of like subconscious hierarchy. And I think that that then really, really kind of gave me some lessons around being a team player, around having respect for people and um, about that piece of literally, you know, you just do what you need to in order to make the progress that's necessary. Hmm. That's a that's a wonderful answer. Um, I guess my reflection on it is just how much more influenced I am by leaders like you who do that, who can do that effectively, um, who are present and available and human, as well as having all of the, you know, as all as well as representing the team and the institution um, well, because it's it's not easy to do to do all of that at once. And um, I don't think that people in leadership roles have to be perfect, but if they're really trying to fulfill both sides of that equation, I, I wind up with so much respect for them. Mm. Me too. Cause it, it's, it, I think energetically it can feel like a drain, but, but you know, the other side of that for me personally, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this is um, when I haven't done it, I felt as if I'm living out of integrity. And actually mm. for me, that is much harder than being able to kind of just be human and, and want to know people and meet them where they are. Yeah. I, yes. I think there are a couple of places that dissonance can show up. It can be between you or me and the organization that we're serving because there's not going to be a perfect fit there. Mm. Or it can be between us and some of the people that we're um, some of our colleagues or people who are reporting to us or, or, or that we're reporting to and so on. There are plenty of places where that dissonance can occur. Uh, you, you used a phrase just a couple of minutes ago that really got me um, thinking, which is you were talking about subconscious levels of hierarchy. Mm. And it gets me back to why I do executive coaching and what I like most about it, um, which is, you know, I, I, it seems clear that we are, we have subconscious levels of hierarchy that show up in our human interactions all the time. Some of them may be relevant to what we're trying to get done. A lot of them aren't. A lot of them are just noise and they're in the way. And it seems like there's a lot of potential that we can unlock by unlearning um, pieces of these, this subconscious hierarchy that we have sometime, somehow gotten ingrained in us consciously or unconsciously that we just have to kind of let go of um, in order to operate more freely and more powerfully. Mm. And I think that's actually a, another kind of point of entry of, of our relationship and how our conversation started, which was those kind of um, subconscious biases that, that we all have and and what we can do within the diversity equity and inclusion space to to support and to really kind of um move the agenda forward and i'm very much around cultivating spaces where people feel that they can belong and and understand and are not psychologically safe in terms of the tick box exercise that exists but actually really genuinely feel as if they can enter a space as their complete selves and and I love the way that that we was, have been speaking about some of these things in our other conversations 
yeah, you know, I'm grateful for those conversations too. I, I think of myself very much as a, as a novice in this area, um, not because I haven't given it a lot of thought. I, I care about it and I give it thought, <laughs> but I just think that there's so much to learn. Yet, for example, you know, in my coaching practice, I, I, I coach women, of course, as well as men. And, you know, there's, you mentioned imposter syndrome at some point. There's a mm. level at which I can, I can rely on my own experience to be useful in a kind of conversation coaching relationship. And there's a level at which I don't know what I don't know. And I don't know the experience of being a woman. I don't know the experience of being a woman at work where there's a kind of, I think of it as swimming in, you know, among other things, an ocean of, of some level of sexism that's kind of in all of us. And then maybe you can change the temperature and the water around you a little bit, <laughs> but you're still in an ocean of it, right? Um, I just, I try to hold that uh, understanding as I try to learn, because mm. um, there's a lot to try to figure out here. Um, mm. I, I, I like to try to keep myself in learning mode is what I'm trying to say. And I get mm. to do a lot of learning when we talk because um, you're very open um, in transmitting kind of your experience and very, very generous, I think, in, in sort of sharing your, um, your experience and just um, having a conversation about things that don't come up uh, necessarily in everyday conversation. So I'm grateful for that. That's very kind of you. And, um, and I, and I, I equally learn so much because I think, you know, in, in some ways it kind of takes back to what I was saying about coaching. You know, we, we think that the conversation is for us, but really it's for the other person and for us. And we gain so much more from the the nuance of the interaction and and all of those things so i just find it really rich and deep and and i think one of the things that you said really kind of struck a nerve with me which was about being a novice i think the the day when one feels as if they're no longer a novice is the day to kind of start thinking well perhaps i need to do something else because I, I mean I, I i appreciate that that i have um, and, and I would hope that I have a level of knowledge within this arena because of the research that I'm doing. But I'm only like one step ahead. That's it. You know, <laughs> no one can claim to have all of the answers, because if they do, then why are we still in a situation where there's so much challenge in the world? Right. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's about um, underrepresenting all the effort that we've done to learn. It's just that it's not enough yet. <laughs> There's so much more to figure out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I wish I had several lifetimes in order to read all the books that I want to, because nowadays I just have to make a decision. If I buy it, am I actually going to read it in the next year or am I wasting my time? <laughs> because yeah. it's just taking space in my bookshelf, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, would, I would love to ask you... Um, what have you said no to that's kind of made way for a space where you've been able to say yes to something 100%? Hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
So this is a sort of personal one. Um, I think that as a young person, I was attracted to drama at some level and found myself, you know, wanting to explore and being out in relationships with a lot of different people and trying to figure out being a rock climber and going surfing and, you know, going out, uh, um, leading wilderness trips for people and trying to just kind of, just, just hungry for life experience. And somehow that translated into my um, relationships, my love relationships, as I was kind of evolving as a person. Um, and I, at some stage, I did a level of kind of personal exploration just to recognize all that dynamism that I was attracted mm -hmm. to and the ways that that was serving me and not serving me. And it was in the middle of that exploration that I decided, yeah, I need to take a break from relationships for a little while and just kind of be just sort of like experience what I'm like when I'm not so externally focused, decided to go out of relationships for a year, you know, sort of significant other relationships for a year. And about six months into that, I met um, my wife, Erica, who was a comp just a very different profile to the kind of people that I had uh, been with before we got married and had three beautiful children and where, you know, we, um, in fact, we're decoupling now. So I guess nothing, I, I, this one didn't last forever in the way that I had hoped it would. But that being said, um, what I think I said no to was, actually, I don't know that I consciously said no to it, other than rather that what I did was calm myself down so that I wasn't naturally stumbling into drama. Mm. And from that calm space, found myself into a, relationship with a person who, you know, um, was bringing different gifts. Mm. Um, yeah, that's what comes to mind. Mm. And I, and it's funny because when you first said drama, I thought you were going to say something completely different, but, but actually the, the way that you've expressed that is really quite powerful because there, we all have opportunities for drama in our life. That's how I'm going to place this I think and one does have to make a conscious decision to say no to it you know I mean even today I, I, I could probably think of an example in fact if if I was to reflect on it going forward in my life I could think of something every single day that potentially could be a drama but yeah. you are making a conscious choice to say no to it um, in order to say yes to something else. And, and in the moment, one might not know what that thing you're saying yes to is. But actually, so let me pause. Maybe you're saying yes to yourself because you're saying, actually, I don't want drama at that level in my life. I think there'll always be like an undertone of it somewhere in some yeah. things. Yeah. But it's it's that you don't, nobody wants superficial kind of like drama right in front of them that is that's there in a way that that could derail if that makes sense yes maybe another word for drama here is diversion or distraction mm -hmm. so there's something about diversion and distraction that's really calming because it takes me away from whatever insecurities that i have going on and whatever worries i have going on and so on 
I just, I'm just in it. There's an emotional charge to it. Mm. Um, by calming down, maybe I can get closer to the, to the real central theme of what I, what I'm actually about, what I want to be about. And by the way, I think by calming down also, I can be a better participant in the world. I think, you know, there in the UK, just as here in the U S we are, we have a kind of cultural illness happening right now around that seems to be easy to stoke um, these kind of um, cultural differences and, and these strongly held beliefs we can get online and fire shots at each other so easily. And I think there's a, a way in which that's really satisfying because your blood gets up and you're like, yeah, let's go. You know, it's, it's very engaging. It's very involving, but ultimately unproductive, counterproductive even. So what's the antidote to that? It's not fighting harder. It's actually calming down, I think. Um, so I wonder even if my little drop in the bucket of calming myself down some can be useful as it emanates away from me too. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that because I think it's um, it's in that moment of pause or or calming down or or just kind of stopping that you're able to really seriously reflect and make good decisions. You know, I think without that, we just keep on going and um, you know, it, it's like when you try and uh, for me, if I try and write respond to um, a, a social media post. And I do it in a rush. I always make a mistake. So I've, I've kind of taught myself now just to stop and come back to it because it's it's actually better for humanity and for myself for me yeah. not to do it in a rush and not to be flippant about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It can always be better. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I'm aware of that I think underlies some of this at the societal level is people are carrying a lot right now. The pandemic has been hard on everybody and uh, dislocate, economic dislocation has, is going on all over the place uh, in addition to all these other challenges we have as society. And people, I think at an individual level, are, you know, I think are hurting a lot in a lot of places. And so I think part of me trying to calm down is having an appreciation for that and an interest in that and a caring in that and being willing to go into that territory a little bit um, rather than be irritated at somebody who shows up, um, you know, in a way that I'm not appreciating, wondering maybe just being a little bit curious about where all that's coming from and what it might be like to be inside of that mindset. Um, I how love hard that, that might be. Yeah, because it's it's really, um, I think it is significant for us just to to pause and reflect on on where the world is at the moment because there is just so much uncertainty, um, and and how do we deal with ourselves and then also support others that are around us? I mean, you've got children, I've got children, and and it's kind of like thinking, well we're having to manage the, our own stuff in our heads, but also support them in a, in a place which is really unknown for all of us. Cause no one had, you know, I was speaking to um, a friend of mine who works in university admissions and, and he was saying, well, this is the first time in his entire career that they will be facing year one um, university students who've not sat an exam to assess them. 
And how are they then going to take them through a process that enables them to learn just the basic skills of how to sit an exam? Sounds really easy. I've been sitting exams since I was 11. But if you've not been doing that, how do you learn that skill? Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's just, it's, and, and I think that perhaps, you know, maybe university structures and things like that are going to have to, adapt and evolve as a result of some of this so we'll we'll see what comes there the other thing that came to my mind as well as you were sharing is that i don't think that that we're meant to like everybody (laughs) i just want to put that on the table because there are people that like for whatever reason it may be um that you just you you kind of meet and you connect and you just think actually that is not a good person for me to have in my um circle or periphery and i think there's no shame in that yeah what are your yeah. thoughts <laughs> yes and also vice versa i'm not the right uh kind of flavor for everybody either right it's it's it, it's fine that not everybody is that interested in me i'm i have my own quirks and whatever I just got a call from a good friend who's spending time in the Great Basin in Nevada, way out in the West. And he's wandering around for a month. He's a a retired university professor. He's just exploring these 6,000-year-old pine trees that grow, Mm -hmm. kind of cling to the sides of cliffs and looking at the stars and thinking about time. And we've we've had these kind of explorations. He's finding petroglyphs. People are showing in places where nobody are, is aware of these petroglyphs that are out there and the rocks just scattered around. You know, he's calling me to talk about it. Uh, you know, he's by himself cooking a vindula the other night and said, oh man, we'd have so much fun cooking this thing and like hanging out. And, uh, you know, nobody wants to come and hang out with him. Even his wife is a little bit like, okay, you know, like politely showing up for a little while. And then, but this is... Um, I'm that way too. Not everyone wants to hang out and do that kind of stuff. But for me, there's nothing better than to be with a good friend and out kind of wandering around slightly aimlessly and just taking in a lot of thinking and, and, and learning. Um, mm. You know, it's not, it's also, it's also a counterpoint to how I show up professionally because I think, you know, we, we, we code switch, right? We go into these different environments where I need to really button up and put on the tie and look, talk about all of my, credentials and show up as this well-credentialed individual but at a at a core there's this other part of me that just wants to be silly and run off in the in the mm. wilderness and play in the rocks and trees and jump in the rivers and be with my friends um i think mm. we can we can contain all of these worlds in us and mm. um that's really important i tell you something funny about code switching because i i had a really big personal lesson in this a couple of weeks ago and um i i mean i am very blessed to be in a variety of different spaces and so in some spaces i may present as being like a little bit posher than maybe my natural kind of cadence let's say and then in other places i'm i'm able to you know maybe drop my G's or just be just a bit more relaxed and things. And I just had back-to-back meetings and I kind of was realizing about the energy that it was taking for me to do some of that code switching. And I thought, you know, at the end of the day, literally at the end of that day, I thought I'm not going to do this again. Hmm. Because, and, and it's kind of quite a radical thing to say, 
but it, it there there has been some form of a shift within how people are perceiving me because I'm not feeling as if I've got to you know sound um, you know speak the Queen's English in certain arenas and then just be able to be more relaxed in others. I think there is just that piece about saying I kind of maybe I've said no to code switching because it's it's of service to others but not necessarily to myself does that make sense (laughs) oh yes it does it does so just being more consistently you and there's a there's a there that's that there's a boldness in that as well because it demands of others to say hey here I am if this situation um allows me to be here as I am great and if Mm. it doesn't well then I'll spend my time in other situations. Mm. And on that, I was speaking about my little statement that's behind um, the the screen. And so if you're watching the video, you'll see it. If you're listening to the audio, um, it says intellectual integrity requires putting your ideas into action. And I was speaking to someone about why that is behind me. And as I woke up this morning, I was thinking, gosh, you know, as much as it helps me to articulate my vision and the things that I'm aspiring to do and bring the right people to me, it also repels the people who don't want to stand up for me with that value. Mm. And I don't have to say anything, right? Like I don't, you know, because you read it and if you don't like it, you will kind of like think, hmm, maybe this isn't the right space for me. Mm. So that's wonderful. It's a wonderful encapsulation of, I, I'm learning here something about you and how you're walking in the world that I just, I just really respect. And I, I guess I maybe knew some of this, but it's, um, thanks for sharing that part of the journey oh you, you're welcome I mean I'm just I, I'm still unpacking these things you know I mean sometimes I have the realization and I say it out loud and I just think actually there's more to it than just that and I think this one about you know it, it's kind of like I want to wear my vision and my aspiration on my sleeve in a way that it attracts the right people and it also repels the wrong ones. Yes. Yes. And I think we're blessed that we can do this over zoom and and the video um, kind of formats that we've become accustomed to in the last year. It would not be so easy if um, I'm coming to your office because literally I come with my bag and my shoes and, and, you know, and we connect in a different way. Right. 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 Hmm. Mm, I'll reflect on that a lot after this, this, this conversation. Wonderful. So how that kind of leads me to a, a, a question, which is how do you bring more of yourself into the work that you do? Yeah. You know, it's, so we were talking other earlier about, um, getting myself out of the way or at least getting my intellectual kind of side out of the way so I can be present kind of in the coaching relationship, which I do with individuals and in groups of entrepreneurs in different environments. Um, But for me, I think it's a bit of what you described, which is code switching less, trying to be less different from environment to environment. Um, 
that's one piece. There's another piece, which is also um, a form of boldness, which is being willing to make mistakes, being willing to kind of show up with my intuition and say, here's my intuition. Here's, here, here's where I go with that. And to be willing to be completely wrong about it and to be, you know, corrected. Um, hopefully not to have offended anyone by being so wrong. But if I do, then finding a way through that and making sure we hold on together and, um, you know, I haven't repelled them too much. (laughs) Yeah. And if we're in a space of learning, then surely one is allowed to kind of say whatever's coming, whether it's right or wrong and learn from that, you know, because if you're waiting to be in a place where everything you say is correct, then I know for me, I'm not going to show up because it's too dangerous. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. um, This may relate. There was, and I wish I could cite it off the top of my head, but maybe six or eight months ago, there was some research that came across in the United States um, about attitudes and that people who were being interviewed were African-Americans. And um, at some level, they appreciated, um, they they preferred um, what they heard from these kind of conservatives who tend to be kind of a little more racist, as opposed to liberals who are, you know, think of themselves as less racist. And the explanation was, look, at least we know where these guys stand. 100%. <laughs> right? There's not this sort of performative intention to be something. It's all very confusing. And it really isn't clear. And they're not admitting to themselves where what their attitudes actually are and all this. So what a mess. Like, at least these people are, you know apparently don't have the sophistication to hide the things that are kind of a little ugly and that's really clarifying (laughs) yeah i Um, agree because at least you know where you stand you know whereas i think that that um there is a real challenge actually when you're with somebody and you don't know what they stand for or they they have their veneer is so strong that you know I mean, to say someone's like a robot is really harsh, but actually it is really difficult to make any assessment about somebody. Um, and and I would I go as far as then saying that there are people who are trying to do so much good that they've lost the essence of themselves because they're caught up in the rhetoric of the good. Um, th- there is possibly some truth in that for some people. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, this word authenticity these days gets, I think, overused, you know, if you're authentically, you know, awful, should you really be authentic? <laughs> right. <laughs> but, 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 um, I think there, I think that authentic, you know, being authentic, there's something about that. If they're, you're at least, you're saying, Hey, kind of here I am. And I'm, this is, um, but being willing to show up kind of as, as, as they are. Um, as we are, uh, is, is, is an important starting point to figure out where we can go. Mm. And, and on that, I mean, like one of the, the frameworks that I have in some of the work that I do on belonging and understanding is about being an ally for others, but also being an advocate for yourself. Because I think that if we focus our energy solely on being an ally for somebody else, then sometimes kind of energetically there's a feeling that you've got to give up a little piece of yourself and when I've tested this out just even saying those words out loud and kind of giving permission to 
for people to be who they are and then also show up as an ally for someone else actually means that they're more able to do the work and and be more authentic to themselves and to others Mm, yeah yeah Mm. yeah moving on i'd love to ask you like if if your 16 year old self saw you today what advice would they give you so what would 16 year old jamie say to you right now Let me find myself at 16. <laughs> oh, 16 year old me would um, actually, first of all, I think 16 year old me would be astonished to find me where I'm sitting right now in a mountain house in Vermont with my brother, who's so dear to me. And I've just spent weeks and weeks with him. And I think that 16 year old would be really relieved just to see that that kinship um, and that brotherhood has remained as strong as it is. That's, you know, family is really important to me and just the relief of looking, what is it, 34 years ahead and seeing um, that that stays just as strong as as ever um, would be a relief. I think meanwhile, that that um, 16-year-old would, I don't know what this means, but uh, we say something like go swimming, like just go, like keep moving, do, <clears throat> I, 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 there's, an, there's a metaphor that's been popping into my mind a lot lately, at, back to this point about how we're, I think many of us are carrying a lot these days. And um, I'm reminded of a swim event that I did just off the tip of Manhattan with a good uh, friend of mine 15 years ago. And we swam around Governor's Island, which is an island just off the southern tip of Manhattan in New York. And what I didn't expect was that in that channel between there and the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island, there are all these tugboats and they leave big wakes. So as you're swimming around the island, it's not calm. The water's bobbing up, you know, four or five feet and then crashing into the rocks beside me. And, you know, if you breathe on this side, you get a mouthful of water. If you breathe on this side, you can get some air. And it was just, there was nothing to do other than keep swimming. And in some ways, I think we're in this kind of, we're bobbing around uh, a lot right now uh, in the waters of the pandemic and our attitudes about each other and global kind of competition, you know, whatever, whatever we're dealing with. Um, and there's a level of, um, there's an importance to staying in motion and to kind of keep moving and moving through that I think is really important. I don't know that my 16 year old self knew that at the time. I think I was more focused on um, getting in my car and driving out and playing with my friends or whatever. Um, but I think, that, but that's what I think uh, mm. if he had some wisdom back then uh, would have said. I love that. I really, really love that analogy of kind of like, you know, getting the water and breathing and just kind of like, you know, nourishing yourself in both places or, or getting what it is that you need in order to be able to move forward. I just love how you express that. So thank you so much for sharing. Um, what is your favorite book? Yeah, so I'm, 
there, this is a the favorite book right now is a book called ADHD 2.0. And um, maybe there's some personal backstory to this, which I think is, is important to share. So when I was young, growing up in Ohio, in the middle of the United States, you know, ADHD in kids wasn't really well understood, but I was a wild uh, kid. I just had a lot of energy. I was difficult to control in the classroom, but, you know, bright enough and everything, but just Mm -hmm. really energetic. Um, And I was tested and apparently I was, um, the psychologist told my mother that I had something called ADHD, um, but not to tell anyone because it would get me categorized in some funny mm-hmm. place and I could, I, I shouldn't. So all of, so until my early forties, I didn't actually know that this mm-hmm. was the case. And so nowadays there are, there's a much better understanding of what that kind of um, uh, brain chemistry and psychological profile is like, what it produces. And I think there are decades of kind of self, judgment and pain that I could have um, done differently if I'd known more about how, how that all actually worked. Um, 25 years ago, a couple of authors, doctors, um, Hollowell and Rady wrote a book driven to distraction, which is about ADHD. Now, just in the last year, they've come out with a new book, which is 25 years more research on this sort of evolution of understanding that they started. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, Saida, for me, reading this book and the brain science that's engaged and all of the compassion and what they've learned from patients and all these, there's so much information in there that to, that for me, it, it's like, it's like, it's like eating nectar from the gods. It's just like manna. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, uh, it, um, I, I, in fact, I'll probably read it three more times before I read anything else. It's really mm-hmm. nourishing to just the sort of self-acceptance that's kind of come through. And so <laughs> at the moment, that's my favorite book. <laughs> that's wonderful. And we'll include a link to it in the show notes. And it just sounds like a book that's really worth reading. So for sure, I'm going to be ordering a copy. Mm-hmm. Um, what else are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment? Oh, so there is a... Um, there's a guy who has a podcast. He's a university person. So I try to listen to people who, who, who aren't like me. So this is kind of a conservative economist at George Mason University. Um, Tyler Cohen is his name. And um, he just has a podcast called Conversations with Tyler. And, he, and he, mm-hmm. he, he interviews people. And what he does well is asks very well-researched um, questions and then sits back and listens to the answer. Um, so I've been listening to that. I like that. Um, I listened to a leadership podcast by an um, ex-military special forces guy in the United States named Jocko Willink, again, yeah. because I've never been in the military, and, um, but his insights on leadership are relevant to clients I work with and um, organizations that I work with. Another book that I can recommend highly and that I've been um, reading is two of my mentors, um, David Bradford and Carol Robin, wrote a book called Connect. And it is it, it debriefs the fundamental lessons of this course that's been going now for 
nearly 50 years in the Graduate School of Business at, at Stanford. Um, but rather than just recounting what happens in the course, it really pulls out the fundamental lessons um, that are most impactful for people. And I think that's a, that's a very good um, recent book as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I bought that on your recommendation and absolutely loved it. So I wholeheartedly endorse what you've just said. And um, something I feel compelled to share is that um, this piece about learning from um, people who are different to you, I, I think that's significantly important. And one of the gifts of the pandemic actually has been the ability to to do more learning than I would have normally done. And um, some of that I get from masterclass. And gosh, David Axelrod and Carl Rove, if you don't know who they are, they're complete opposite ends of the political spectrum. They teach a masterclass on politics. And for me, it was just one of the most interesting um, kind of things, because even the story of how they connected, I'm not going to share it here, but it's just incredible. And it goes back to all we were saying at the beginning about connecting at a human level. And once they did that, and it all it came from a letter, right? Once they did that, I mean, look at the relationship and the bond that must have been formed in order to be able to teach a masterclass together. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I don't know how much of your, if your listenership doesn't know these two people, they're extremely polarizing figures on the American left and right. Extremely. We, we liberals blame Karl Rove for, for the strategy that has ruined America and the, um, uh, you know, conservatives have the same thing to say about David Axelrod. It's just, <laughs> it's just couldn't be more diametrically opposed in terms of what they've produced in our culture. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's wonderful to watch actually. Just even from that perspective of they're so far apart, but the theory that they teach and the strategy that they unpack, there are similarities. So again, it's this piece about how can people that are so different in in their understanding of the way the world works come together and have some level of of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, my final question for you is, what advice do you have for me? Ah, it's easy just to say, keep doing what you're doing. I think I would condense it by giving the same advice that I'm trying to give to myself, which is to stay in learning mode. This has been a delightful conversation, Seda, and I'm, I'm grateful that you wanted to speak with me. And your openness to learning and openness of your questions and willingness to connect is really powerful. Um, you, you know, you've, you've, you've easily navigated to some of the best parts of me and what I have to say. And it's very comfortable talking with you. I think that um, your ability to draw out um, insights in an excellent conversation is wonderful. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you already have such a broad listenership and uh, uh, they're lucky to have you. We're lucky to have you. So <laughs> I would just say carry on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And, and you know, the, the blessing about these conversations is that I have no idea what's going to unpack. So I've kind of got a list of questions. Most of the time I might just end up asking one of them because it just goes into so many different dimensions, but each one is just so rich. And for me, this conversation has just been such a gift because I've got to know 
bits of you, Jamie, that I would not have known otherwise. And the 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 way that you've shared and offered advice to the listeners has been really, really impactful. So um, it's been a gift for all of us. Just lastly, if people want to get in touch with you or find out about your work, what is the best way for them to do that? You know, actually, I would invite anyone in your listenership just to set up a call and we'll chat for 15 or 30 minutes. They can do that by going to meetjamie.com and it'll go right to my Calendly. Just throw something on the schedule and say that if, if, they, if they mention somewhere in there that they met me through you. So it's it, Jamie is spelled J-A-M-E-Y. So meet Jamie is meetjamie.com. Yeah, and if you say something about Saida in there, then I'll know that it came from this and I'll take the meeting. Fantastic. Thank you. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. This has just been a huge gift. Um, I will say that I, I will always look forward to every single conversation that we have. And I hope that we will have plenty going forwards. Um, it's been a real pleasure. And I'm grateful for you for everything that you're doing in the world and also because you're in my life. So thank you. Thank you as well. I look forward to our next conversation. If you enjoyed this episode of With Sayada, I'd appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people find out about the podcast and the work of the Centre for Belonging and Understanding.